Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the Environment 203 Knowledge, Ethics, and Environment podcast. We are in week two now, uh, and the question that we are going to be examining or considering is how do we understand animal experience? Okay, so let's get started. To begin, I would like to turn to the Being Prey chapter uh, written by Val Plumwood. Plumwood was an Australian eco-philosopher, eco-feminist, known for her work on anthropocentrism, actually. Uh, She worked largely as an independent scholar, although she held positions at the University of Tasmania, North Carolina State University, University of Montana, and the University of Sydney. Uh, And at the time of her death in 2008, she was the Australian Research Council Fellow at the Australian National University. Now, in this piece, Being Prey, Plumwood talked about the crocodile as a symbol of power, a symbol of the ecological integrity of the Kakadu National Park. But in her encounter with a crocodile, she recognizes the animal as having its own inner world. Um, And from its view, she was prey. And now I'll just note that rather than saying from her view or his view, the crocodiles, that is, uh, Plumwood was prey. I said its own inner world, its view. That's um, a quirk of the English language, but it's an important one, uh, as we'll see as we continue on today. Uh, It's something that I just want to flag for now. Um, Yeah, and we'll come back to that. So another important element of this um, text is the way that Plumwood describes seeing herself from the outside during the attack, during the most kind of crucial moment. Um, And at that point, she's saying, you know, she's not inside her own subjective experience as Val Plumwood saying, you know, this can't be happening to me with a, a whole story of why behind it. In that moment, when she caught a glimpse of herself as prey from the outside, What she saw was a world that was indifferent to her suffering, full of life, full of living and dying and living and dying. And yet still somehow after this traumatizing experience, Plumwood goes on to actually defend crocodiles from retribution. There were humans who wanted to return to the site of the attack and kill a crocodile, not necessarily the one that attacked her, how would they know which one, but there was a desire for a consequence or vengeance, and it was Plumwood who said, no, please don't, um, that she wasn't interested in that. So, this is obviously a hugely important experience for Plumwood. Um, And as a philosopher, she does some interesting things with it, makes very important connections and and generates significance here. So she experiences herself as prey, not only as a predator, and she realizes that humans live both in an ethical order and in an ecological order. 
our lives are actually shaped in both. We act as though the ethical order is the only one of consequence, but there is in fact an ecological order too. She concludes that actually humanity should be honoring that reality and that we should want to give up a kind of colonizer role where we imagine we're only predators and never prey. She's asking us to take a more vulnerable place in the world. So to the question, how do we understand animal experience? I think Plumwood might say that even though many of us think it's something very radically different from us, that's actually incorrect. While she can't pretend to know that why the why the crocodile was angry with her, for example, I think what she's saying is that both the human and the crocodile in that encounter were living within the ethical and the ecological, and that we do better to understand our lives as shaped by both. Perhaps we're not so far apart as we like to think. And actually, this reminds me of the David Boyd chapters we've read for this week. In this reading, we have many, many examples of qualities we share with other animal species. And he concludes uh, that animals are clearly sentient. So sentience meaning that um, the animals have sense perception, they have a consciousness, and that we can... Uh, study other animals, and we can recognize their sentience, but that doesn't mean that we can really know what goes on inside their heads. This is interesting, and we'll pick it back up when we come to the final reading for this week. But for now, I want to think about Boyd. He also talks about the myth of human exceptionalism, and I think that this idea that humans are radically different, and not only different but better than all of the rest of life on Earth, feeds into the idea of anthropocentrism that we were talking about last week. Where does our thinking about human exceptionalism, where does our idea of anthropocentrism come from? The truth is these are very old uh, dispositions. Some scholars trace it as far back as Greek thought. Boyd mentions that Aristotle thought animals didn't have souls or the capacity to reason, and so as such could be treated as resources. And there are plenty of examples of anthropocentrism within all kinds of different traditions of thought, Christian traditions, Jewish traditions. Uh, you can work your way around the world on this one. And they're not exclusive, uh, but the point is that there are many, many examples. And the one specific example I'll, I'll offer you now is just one of many. But I want to talk about the great chain of being. This is a, uh, a concept that emerged in medieval Christian thought, where we see a kind of strict and divine hierarchical order advanced in this worldview. And the important thing to understand about the great chain of being is that the order is fixed. It doesn't change. This is a kind of map of both ethical and 
and spiritual life on earth. It puts everyone in a ranking and that ranking cannot be changed. The other thing that's interesting to note here is that humans are not at the top of the great chain of being, but we do occupy a pretty special place at the intersection of the spiritual and the material world. So in the notes for this week, you'll be able to see a picture of the great chain of being, Um, but for now, I'll just try to walk us through it. So the chain starts with God at the top uh, and progresses downward. Um, So next we have the angels. Uh, They're in the next category because they are eternal beings of spirit. Whereas humans are below angels and they're in the spirit. We we have spirit, but we're also beings of flesh. Um, And so we're one rung down in this chain or one link down. Um, And within humanity, you know, that's not a single category. Uh, We can be ranked within that category of kings and princes, nobles, commoners. And you'll note um, all of those categories are generally male gendered. So I don't know where the women are in this great chain. That's just something to keep an eye on. Next, you would have other animals. So uh, first, you would have wild animals below humans and then domesticated animals below them. Uh, And finally, we're getting into trees, other kinds of useful plants, precious stones, precious metals, and finally, other minerals. So every link in the chain could be divided into those other component parts. Um, but the guiding premise of the great chain of being is that it everything has its place in the universe. It's this chain organizes and gives meaning to all that exists. So, given this, um, you can see where these roots of ideas of human exceptionalism connect from something like that. We're at the top of the chain in the material world. What are some contemporary reasons we might help defend this position? Um, we see this in the Boyd chapter. We, we hear of examples of like, well, what if, what if it's tool use or language or our emotional life or our capacity to reason or even our ethical behavior or altruism uh, towards others? And systematically, researchers have been able to find examples of these kinds of behaviors in the animal world. And not only among primates, for example, where we might go to look first, we've seen uh, this in octopus behavior, whale behavior, crows, elephants, even bumblebees. Um, So this idea that we are somehow completely unique and better than is getting harder and harder to prop up. So the thing to remember here is that when we have these roots in human exceptionalism, these assumptions that are kind of anthropocentric, it's going to shape our our relationship with other animals. It's going to impact our capacity to imagine other ways of being in the world. 
So this is an important issue for us. And the anthropologist Tim Ingold, in his work, um, has asked questions such as, what makes human animals special? What makes us animals of a particular kind? And in thinking of this question, he actually makes an interesting distinction. He looks at human beings as species, where humanity presents itself as a continuous field of variation, compounded by all kinds of finely graded differences. So like any species, we have lots and lots of variation within the species. He also thinks about being human as a condition, as opposed to simply being a species. And when he thinks about being human as a condition, elements of personhood and culture become really crucial ingredients. So when we're thinking about ourselves as a species, Ingold wants us to remember that no species has a kind of firm structure to its genetic distribution. Every organism is a novelty. So every human being is an individual of the species but what about being human as a condition? This condition brings forward the idea of our personhood and our culture, of being someone rather than something. So I think it's really powerful to notice that when we are a someone rather than something, it actually makes a huge difference. It sets this very different frame around how we are to be treated. Excuse me. Being someone means that we are granted a subjectivity. If I'm a someone, I'm an agent. I have consciousness. I matter. I'm not an object. I'm not a thing. I'm not property. And the idea that humans are subjects and the rest of the animal world are not is taken for granted in the Western tradition. And, you know, as I gave the, the crocodile example earlier, when I said we don't know what it was thinking or, you know, Plumwood wasn't sure why it was angry, that's actually a rhetorical move that positions the, the crocodile as an object, as a thing. Now, again, as I've said before, not everyone thinks this way, but this is a dominant view in the Western tradition, and it has very important consequences for the health of the environment, and so that's why we're interested in it. So what if we shifted the dominant frame a little bit and started to think about humans in relationship to the natural world and not just as the only creatures that warrant justice or fair treatment or, or, or space for their subjectivity? We might start to attend to the complexities of a more abundant and thriving world with many kinds of subjects. We might actually be able to start seeing sustainability solutions uh, well beyond what we can even imagine now. And so the idea here is that, yes, human, humans are uh, a biologically unique species, but so is every other species on the face of the earth. So this seems like a good opportunity for us to transition towards the final reading for the week. Uh, 
the the chapter called Representing and Misrepresenting Animals. And before we get into the details of that work, uh, I just want to attend to the idea of representations themselves. It's important to recognize that representations are acts of power. Anytime I'm speaking on behalf of or acting on behalf of someone else, I'm wielding power. And in fact, it's one of the things, if you think back to the trial that we read last week, one of the things that made that very short little uh, text so compelling was that the other animals that we share a planet with were formally representing their own interests. We are so accustomed to representing them. And in this flipped that whole idea. And in fact, we were accountable to them. And that's one of the things that made the story um, so interesting. Now, in the chapter that we read for this week, we start to get the sense that there are some dilemmas that emerge from our representations of animals. So let's take a closer look at that. The chapter is from a larger work called Minding Animals, Awareness, Emotions, and Heart by Mark Beckhoff. Mark Beckhoff is a professor emeritus of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado. And he's a fellow of the Animal Behavior Society. He's also a co-founder with Jane Goodall of Ethologists for the Ethical Treatment of animals. Ethology is a term that came up a few times in the chapter. It describes the science of animal behavior, and in particular, it focuses often on behavior as an evolutionarily adaptive trait. So, in representing and misrepresenting animals, Beckhoff argues that the words we choose to use to talk about animals actually influence our attitudes towards them. So practices like naming an animal has a huge impact in how we relate to them. And so as a researcher who works with other animals, he advocates a whole range of strategies to think about this and how to engage with other animal species. And he says, even as he does this work, that there is, quote, not only one correct way to describe or explain what animals do or feel, end quote. So he recognizes the importance for pluralism here. Now, I think the most important concept or contribution from this chapter, there's many interesting stories and they are well worth taking a look at, but the conceptual contribution of this work is the idea of biocentric anthropomorphism. So let's unpack this term a little bit. What does biocentrism mean? Really, it means that living things have intrinsic value. Okay, so if you're alive, you have your own intrinsic value. What does intrinsic value mean? Let's drill down a little further. It means that you have a value independent of the interests of others, whereas extrinsic, EX, intrinsic value is when the value is relative only to the valuers or to the interests of some other kind of entity. So let me give you an example so that you know what I mean here. If you have a cat and I'm kind to your cat because it's your property and I want you to like me, then I'm behaving in a way that is motivated by a assumption that cats only have extrinsic value. It's just a means to an end in terms of maintaining my relationship with you. It has no value in its own right. On the other hand, if I'm respectful to this animal, let's say 
Her name is Buttons and she's friendly and she's soft and she has her own life and the right to be treated without cruelty. Then I'm treating her well because she has the right to enjoy good treatment. Buttons has her own rights, her own interests outside of what I might think of cats. So to come back to the concept, biocentric anthropomorphism means that we anthropomorphize animals in a way that respects their own intrinsic value outside of human interests. So we interpret their behavior through a human lens, but we do it in a way that respects their own value. Is this even possible? Is this an oxymoron? I don't think so. I don't think it's an oxymoron at all. I think that the term draws on the language of value theory and helps us tap into a sense of moral consideration that reaches beyond the human. So if we're looking to ethology and, and Beckhoff's work to help us inform this question of how do we understand animal experience, I think Beckhoff is suggesting that we have no choice but to interpret other animal, uh, animal behavior through our own lens as human animals. We are going to anthropomorphize. We can't help it. There's no getting out of our human perspective. But it doesn't have to be a problem. He writes on page 50, quote, being anthropomorphic does not ignore the animal's perspectives. Rather, anthropomorphism can help to make accessible to us the behavior and thoughts and feelings of the animals with whom we share a particular experience. End quote. So what does this really mean? I think it's, it works on two levels. First, I think he's saying we can do this anthropomorphizing, we can do it in a critical way, whereby we recognize the limit of our representation and we draw from multiple sources in order to have rich characterizations of animal behavior. But secondly, we can also recognize that we cannot step outside our own human perspective. And so this kind of a gesture might actually be the best we can get. Beckhoff writes that we're humans and we have a human view of the world. But there's something important about biocentric anthropomorphism that helps us extend our relationships with animals in a way that extends our ethical thinking, too. I think it's a really important move analytically because it can open up new fields of research. If we wanted to understand, for example, human behavior only by looking at neurons firing, and we were to use only those activities to interpret um, why I'm feeling uh, happy to be talking to you all today, I think that it would be a limited understanding of what's going on. And so we look to the behavior, we look to the fact that my eyes are open widely, that I'm smiling through this microphone. You might not be able to see it, but perhaps you can hear it a little bit. These things uh, give you deeper insight into an emotional life that I have, that I'm speaking to you, drawing on that life. And likewise, our capacity to anthropomorphize in a biocentric way can help us flesh out to go past the kind of what neurons are firing and into that richness of experience for an animal subjectivity. And like 
He says, suggests it can help us focus attention on new research questions and see things that we might not otherwise see uh, in terms of directions we might want to go uh, in, in terms of scholarly work and the kinds of relationships with animals that we want to have. What can we take away from these three different texts, reading the Plumwood uh, article, the Boyd chapters, and finally this, this chapter from Beckhoff. I think what we see is that we have very good reasons to imagine that animals are a subject of a life. And if we recognize that, it will affect how we treat them, just like naming animals affects how we treat them. We're talking about other animals no longer being objects or property, but subjects in their own right with their own intrinsic value. And it reminds me a little bit of Plumwood's story, actually, how that violent threat of death that she faced tore her from her own subjectivity. She was prey for a moment. And I think what all of these writers are asking us to consider is why shouldn't we recognize both our own human animal nature and our ethical subjectivity as being something that we share with other animals? So this is something that also came out in the Beckhoff paper, actually, was this idea of speciesism and the problem with we-them dualisms. When we're making decisions about how we should treat other animals, we can rely on species as the sole category for determining moral consideration, or we can use other criteria, such as individual characteristics of specific individuals, of, of specific types of different animals. <clears throat> now, this is an important set of options, so let's think it through. Speciesists tend to make decisions about how humans are permitted to treat other animals based on an individual species membership rather than an individual animal's characteristics. So speciesism ignores evolutionary continuity between the species in favor of convenience. It's basically a simpler way to go. There's often higher and lower orders of species, and your rank in that order allows us to determine how we're allowed to use them, basically. Um, generally, the closer to humans we get in a speciesist ranking, the more rights, the more protections animals are afforded. Um, we'll come back to this when we read um, the, the piece, I think it's in a week or two, about considering the lobster. Um, but for right now, let's just keep that in mind. That's the speciesist logic. The non-speciesist position recognizes that actually when it comes to certain traits, various individual animals might actually share equivalent capacities across species. Or certain species that are considered lower down in a, in a ranking system might actually have special skills or sensitivities that are pretty impressive and warrant consideration. So for example, 
Uh, dogs have an incredible capacity for smell and butterflies can see colors we don't even have names for. But according to a speciesist ranking, they wouldn't be considered um, particularly high in the order of things. And so this is why Beckhoff is not convinced that, that separating us from them works. He says this dualism doesn't work. Oh, what's a dualism? We'll get into this in much, much more detail um, later in the course. But for right now, I think it's useful to understand that a dualism results from a denied dependency on a subordinated other. That's actually Val Plumwood's definition. And when we read her again at the end of the term, um, we'll come back to that definition and understand why it's so important. But right now, I think we need to understand that a dualism is characterized by a need. There's a self who needs another, but this relationship is characterized by two things. The first, the self has this other that it needs, but the need is denied, so I don't acknowledge it, and that there's a power dynamic involved in this denied dependence. And that power dynamic shapes the identity of both the self and the other, the human and the animal, for example. And he's saying, Beckhoff is saying, that kind of dualism, us versus them, it just doesn't work. It, there's, it's the similarities, not the differences, that drive so much of the research into animal lives. And as we have seen in all of the readings, there are many, many, many examples where the complexity of animal experience just doesn't warrant this kind of facile carving them off as something radically different. So Beckhoff argues that portraying animals in this way, and particularly portraying them as objects, also promotes the view that animals are commodities, and as such have the right to be bought and sold and traded and used as we want in whatever way that we want. So, in, in a critique, you know, what he's saying is that it's essential not only to look at animals, but to see them as they actually are, not as we want them to be. And what I would argue in conclusion here is that in actual fact, if we want to draw fully from Boyd's critique about anthropocentric anthropocentric thinking, and also Plumwood's critique in understanding um, the shared reality of the eth ecological order and the ethical order that we inhabit, is that we might want to see ourselves as well as we actually are and not as we want to be, that we share these places in the ethical and ecological orders of the world. And we may not be quite uh, as far apart as we like to think. So I think that that's uh, quite enough for one more week. Thank you very much for listening and take good care.